HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Ithaca, New York boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation among 150 waterfalls. Plan your trip today with help from visitithaca.com. Hey, this is Hannah Forden. I'm the program manager here at Heritage Radio Network. This year, we're celebrating HRN's 10th anniversary, and I want to thank all of our listeners and members for being a part of an incredible year of food radio. We never would have made it this far without all of you. So HRN is now in its summer fun drive, and this is when we turn to you and ask that you make a donation to help ensure a bright future for food radio. Whether you listen to one show or 20, there's a reason why you keep tuning in week after week. All of our content is powered by a small nonprofit, and we rely on your generosity to keep going. Help us keep broadcasting the most thought-provoking, entertaining, and educational conversations happening in the world of food and beverage. So become a member today. To celebrate our 10th anniversary, we have some brand new member gifts available online, so... I encourage you to snag your new favorite pizza-themed t-shirt or enamel pin today and show the world how much you love HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate so you can snag your 10th anniversary member swag. And thank you. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, podcast, Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome award-winning cookbook author, cooking teacher, and expert on Latin American foodways, Sandra Gutierrez. In this episode, we're going to talk to Sandra about the new Southern Latino movement, Southern American Regional Cooking, and we'll hear Sandra's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Nothing defines Julia Child more than her deep and abiding love of French cooking. What gets less focused than the massive impact mastering the art of French cooking had on American cooks and American food is what Julia did as her career evolved. Later in her television programs, she focused much more on what American chefs were doing, particularly in marrying their own personal backgrounds with local or regional ingredients. For the last few decades of her career, Julia was focused more on the food of the American melting pot than on France. Just as Julia became immersed in the blending of French traditions with a more and more clearly defined American food culture, so has Sandra Gutierrez. Born in the United States, raised in Guatemala City, and now a longtime denizen of the American South, Sandra is a veteran cooking teacher, award-winning food writer, four-time cookbook author, and culinary historian 
based in North Carolina. Sandra has been following how Latin American food traditions have entered, intertwined with, and influenced American cuisine and American cooks. You may have caught our brief conversation with Sandra about American regionalism in episode 32, Voices from the Smithsonian Food History Weekend. We are so intrigued by what she had to say that we welcome her back to the podcast to have a deeper conversation about American regionalism and her twin areas of expertise, Latin American food and Southern cooking. Welcome to the podcast, Sandra. Thank you, Todd, for having me. Very excited to be back. And we're excited to have you back. So let's start uh, big picture with you telling us a little bit more about what it is and how you define the new Southern Latino movement. Ah, the new Southern Latino movement is one that reflects, I think, the crossing and blending of the food of the 21 Latin American countries with the entire regional cuisines of the South. And it was made possible when in the 1990s, uh, some of the laws surrounding immigration um, laws changed in the United States and some of the socio-political limitations were lifted and allowed immigration by myriad Latinx from all over the continent to move deeply into southern regions of the United States past Florida. So um, I find that uh, the new Southern Latino movement is perhaps a continuation of what originated in this continent right at the beginning of, of the time on the formation of the Americas. It is a movement, Todd, that was made possible, uh, too, by three common denominators shared by all of the cuisines involved at its roots. The first one being that all 21 countries of Latin America and the southern region of the United States shared the same three ethnic groups at the base of each of their individual cuisines, those being the Native Americans, all different kinds of groups and tribes, but all Native Americans, the Europeans, mostly the Spaniards uh, who came to the Americas, uh, the British and the French, the Africans who were forcefully brought into the Americas to replace the millions of natives killed by war, famine, exploitation, disease, etc. The second thing that made this movement possible is that we shared the same basket of ingredients, that meaning uh, corn, cacao, pork, chiles, nuts, squash, tomatoes, for instance, etc., we just have a different way of combining and using them, but the basic basket of ingredients is the same. And thirdly, these three groups uh, had culinary influences and cooking techniques that are shared. So we start with boiling and braising and deep frying, but I always love to recognize uh, barbecue. Uh, that's my favorite one to bring out because uh, barbacoa, that term and that technique, uh, is not a southern regional technique or term, but it is actually a Latin American technique. It was actually created by the Taino Indians of the Latin Caribbean, where uh, Cuba, Dominican Republic, and are now. Um, and that the, the term barbacoa was both coined by them and the cooking technique was invented by them, that technique in which we cook food on a steak over fire, directly over fire. So if you go deeply into Latin America today, um, both the term and the technique barbacoa have survived, they have evolved, they have changed. And of course, in the American South, uh, you have the African Americans who perfected it and who have uh, really um, made it one of the most important staples of Southern cuisine today. So that is what the new Southern Latino movement is. It is a movement of, of union, of regions, of history and cultural foodways that come together in modern day time, but that is really just a continuation of what has been happening from the beginning of time in this side of the world. So I think that's so interesting that you used barbecue as an example, because I think the modern face of barbecue, although I think it started to shift back to African American pit masters as the real experts, but for so long, it was the purview of sort of white, Southern, Midwestern guys, um, and that was the face of barbecue. But when you really look at barbecue, it has this tradition that goes back, I think, even beyond what is now the more recognized African-American expertise and pit masters. Uh, but I think back to the West Indies, as you, you were referring to, and I think reorienting barbecue in that context is so 
fascinating because it's such an emblematic cuisine of the South that has been sort of twisted. Could you talk more more about that? Yes. Uh, you know, when people talk a lot about appropriation, which has become the N-word to use in the past decade of cuisines, I always go back to the barbecue plate because the barbecue plate to me exemplifies the melding of of cultures and how you can't appropriate techniques or cuisines of other places if you remove the economic, um, I think the economic fight, which is what people tend to concentrate on. But barbecue in its origins is from the Tainos. And it is the simplest way of cooking meat over heat. It's meat and fire together, period. And how it has become so emblematic of the South is just because uh, it is a tradition of of very simple um, cooking that keeps you close to the land and close to to something that anybody could do. Um, African Americans have become emblematic of um, Southern uh, regional barbecue. But in Latin America, I would say typically men in general are considered the ones that barbecue to this day. So I find that to be very interesting that in both cultures, men are the one not women, but men are the ones that tend to cook outdoors. The meat on the fire is still considered a very manly thing to do. Um, but if you look at the barbecue plate and we go to the corn, found either in corn mush or in corn salads in Latin America or simply a corn on the cob, Collard greens, which are very common in Latin America, from Brazil, actually, upwards into Central America, called verdolagas or verdes, acelgas, all of those different dishes. And you, put, you, you, you start putting together the barbecue plate as we recognize it now, now in the South, you really can find very similar platters in, throughout Latin America. So, again, I think it is more of a of a region, and I think that's what makes the new Southern Latino movement so pivotal and so interesting in historical um, in, in, the, in its historical context. And it is that it's to me a continuation that was interrupted in history when immigration was hermetically sealed to the Southern United States by people around the continent. But once people start trickling back in from Latin America into the South in the 1990s, um, all of these dishes, all of these ingredients, all of these techniques, and all of the people just start finding each other again. And it's as if history was reintegrated, if you will, after a a long interruption. And it, it picks up in the dishes that we are now serving here in the South. Yeah, so could you give us some examples of of what dishes you really think exemplify the, the movement in addition to barbecue? Yes, I think my favorite one would be peach salsa. Uh, and it's one of my favorites because when you drive down I-95 and you go down from Virginia all the way down to Florida, you see the signs all over the roadside down the highway of people selling their peach salsa. Uh, salsa, of course, means sauce in Spanish but it is mostly recognized as the pico de gallo from Mexico made with tomatoes. And peaches are a fruit. They're a fruit of the South. And so making a peach salsa with the exact same ingredients that you would use in making a tomato salsa has become very common in the South. Um, You will find things now like um, biscuits with gravy, which are very big in the South. You can find them with tomato gravy and, of course, your sausage gravy. But now you find a lot of them being made with chorizo gravy. Uh, you also find jalapenos in hush puppies, for instance. So jalapeno hush puppies are all over the place. In fact, I just had lunch at a place in the mountains in Highlands in North Carolina a couple of weeks ago that I was there on vacation, and it was a traditional southern barbecue um, eatery. And on the menu, they had fried catfish tacos with pico de gallo, and they had pulled pork sandwiches with peach salsa. So all all of these uh, things are are appearing. This is the Appalachian region of the South, so this is pretty far up uh, north compared to where Florida is. Um, Also, avocado on everything. Avocado butter on biscuits. Avocado uh, mixed with buttermilk for cold soups. Um, Avocado toast is not a Californian invention. Uh, Latin Americans have been eating avocado on bread for centuries, so I like to see that now in the South. Um, Chimichurri 
in everything. Chimichurri roasted chicken, chimichurri on barbecue sandwiches, chimichurri on uh, casserole dishes. Um, barbecue chicken is now making uh, appearances in menus here inside pastries like fried pies, which we in Latin America call empanadas. You'll find those in Great Britain, also known as pasties or, or uh, hand pies in all over the world. That is a Persian um, culinary tradition that came to the Americas via the Spaniards that made its way up to the south and that it's still very, very big, and now we're finding uh, another new um, combination of them. Uh, but I'm finding things like guava, glazed baby back ribs, uh, pimento cheese, nachos, uh, chipotle peppers in barbecue sauce, uh, chile in, in all sorts of chocolate uh, desserts from brownies and bread puddings. Uh, so I, I see it a lot. There are a lot of examples of this, and I think that uh, the origin of it is, not surprising because if when I was writing the book, The New Southern Latino Table, one of the things that that stuck out for me is how many dishes are very similar in both the southern regional area of the United States and different Latin American countries. So, for example, you can compare the tapados of the Latin Caribbean, Honduras, Belize, uh, parts of Puerto Rico, uh, Nicaragua, which are chowders made with seafood and coconut. And they're very, very similar to the shrimp bisque or the lobster bisque or the fish chowders that you'll find in the low country in that Charleston area of South Carolina, for example. Um, you, you, you'll find a lot of dishes that are similar. Uh, the corn, corn tamale pudding that you find here, corn cakes, where you have ground beef in the bottom and a tamale or biscuit, corn biscuit mix on top. It's very similar to, to pastel de choclo in Chile, where you have also a picadillo or a ground beef mixture with olives and raisins topped with a corn, fresh corn pudding. So I find a lot of the dishes are, um, are it's not far-reaching fusion. It's just that the, the two renditions, the two different ways of preparing and coming together at the table um, in, an, in a third rendition, if you will, born from the same tradition. That's so fascinating. I, I wanted to pick out two examples and, and, and see and sort of use them because I think the peach one is so interesting and, and avocados too, because while those are very common and obviously the avocado proliferation on menus has is, is become almost worldwide, but those are two ingredients that even to this day only grow in a certain sort of latitude, right? And that, that are quite sensitive. And I think it's quite interesting to, to look at those two things proliferating because they are so specific to certain um, growing regions. Did, did, could you kind of pick up on that or do, do, you, do you see what I'm talking about? I, I do. I do see it. Uh, peaches. Let's talk about peaches. I live in an area in North Carolina in the Sand Hills area where you have lots of peach orchards. Georgia, you can't think of Georgia without peaches, South Carolina. I mean, the, the growth of peaches in the South in the summer is as ubiquitous as the growth of tomatoes. And tomatoes have all, of course, tomatoes being the fruit of the Americas that, that, that the Americas gave the world, are also beloved in the South. Um, you talk about peaches, you talk about tomatoes interchangeably uh, here in the South. But the way that they have been um, combined now in recipes and in and if you will almost exchange it's it's almost it's almost like like that that Disney movie where the thirteen year old mother uh thirteen year old daughter switches places with a mother and back and forth and they switch lives it's like that with tomatoes and peaches and I love to make that distinction because nowadays you can find sweet tomato cobblers made in the same way that peaches were used with cinnamon and allspice cooked in a jam covered with pastry in the same manner that you're finding peaches in salsa. You're finding a lot of gazpachos now made with watermelon, for instance. Not in the Spaniard tradition. Spanish gazpachos have bread in them. That's what makes them a gazpacho. But in a Latin American tradition without the bread addition, so tomatoes and watermelon combined in a cold soup, for instance. Avocado and buttermilk combined in a, in a soup. Peaches and tomatoes combined in a cold soup. You're finding a lot of that interchange between peaches and tomatoes. And I find that to be fascinating. To me, that is what makes this a movement. That's why this is not a fusion. A fusion or a trend is something that is planned, that is um, mapped 
is, is in a way by, by chefs, by somebody who's actually controlling it. But a movement is organic. A movement happens without anybody really no, really noticing it, without anybody really making a plan of, oh, I'm going to combine these four ingredients to create a new recipe. It's just making um, different kinds of combinations, making different kinds of uh, recipes with familiar ingredients and with new ingredients that are coming to your table without really planning it. It's just very um, much an, a, a, a result of happenstance, of serendipity. Yeah, I was going to ask you, how aware do you think non-Latino Southerners, mostly white and African Americans, kind of are of this evolution in Southern food? Obviously, they might recognize the menu, but do you think it's hit people's consciousness that Southern food is evolving in this way? Generally speaking, I don't think that the majority of people of any race is aware of the, or are aware of the changes that are occurring in food waste. Uh, people seldom are. Food is something that um, very few people give that much thought to other than that's what they're going to eat day in and day out, you know. But uh, academia, food writers, anthropologists, I think, are more likely to notice the subtle changes. And again, that is what differentiates a movement from a trend, that everyone is a part of it, unbeknownst to them, because it happens so slowly, subtly, and when people least expect it, um, it's not calculated. Plus, I'm not sure that there is a race divide to be discerned in this, because the Latinx in the South themselves are not aware that there is a culinary movement that they're a part of either. And again, because it's not a planned change. We're not coming here to change food ways to reinvent Southern food. It's just happening. Um, and I, I think a good example is, you know, the workers who bring their lunch to work, either in the field or in their offices or at school, the kids, and they find themselves breaking bread or breaking biscuits or breaking tortillas or what have you with someone who brings field peas or maybe a corn and tomato salad or a ham salad from home. And they all share it and then they bring their ideas back home to them uh, with them, and they start cooking and 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 exchanging these gastronomic uh, fusions, if you will, at home without knowing that they're doing it. It's just a gastronomic exchange that happens at the table, and it happens over and over and over again, exponentially, with many people in different places, until you have a movement. But I don't think anybody plans it or notices it. It's not a black, white, or Latinx thing. It it, it just happens. So it's a long answer to say. The way I see it is the new Southern Latino movement is simply a branch um, that grows in the huge tree that I like to call Southern regional foodways and that grows next to the Cajun branch and the Creole branch and the Geechee branch and the soul food branch, etc. And, and do you think that's a good thing that they're not aware of it or do you think people should be more aware of it? I think... People simply are not aware of it when it first starts. It takes somebody like me to point it out. I like to say I never invented the New Southern Latino movement. I simply was here at the right time to find it, to discover it, to to call attention to it. And I think that's the way every movement has been. There's always been someone who says, oh, look, have you noticed that this is what is happening in the low country? Or have you noticed that this is what the Canadians brought, the Acadians brought to the New Orleans to, to uh, um, the area, southern area, and created, you know, Cajun cuisine. Or there's always somebody who brings it up. But then, decades later, later, uh, when Southerners have already integrated to the flavors, um, I think it's that that's when the people start getting a sense of pride of of, of a new movement um, because there's no fear. There's no fear that we're coming. That a group is coming to take away or to remove the classics or to change something. I think that that fear element um, is removed with time, and that's what allows a movement to be respected and a movement to be accepted and celebrated. So it's kind of like people are being gently lulled into actually appreciating an evolution rather than anything more stark or uncomfortable. Yeah, because it's happening so subtly anyway, and because people are absorbing all of it very slowly. I'll tell you, um, you come to the South now and you find all of these barbecue sauces, depending on what area of the South you're in. But you're finding now that some of them are getting hotter, spicier. 
some of them are now uh, being served on dishes that people wouldn't think of serving them on before, like uh, potato salad with the mustard sauce of South Carolina, uh, which is sweet and mustardy. And you start seeing all these changes that are reminiscent maybe of the, of the potato causas in Peru. And and people don't know that they're doing it. They're just eating them, and they taste good when you put them together. But you won't see them reflected and accepted as a movement until decades later when people can go back. And there is, um, I don't know, like a, a, a history, a timeline of how it happened, and a good description of the recipes that are part of the movement and people have been eating them for a while and people don't feel resentment. The people who are in the place where others, where others come to, the othering, if you will, when others come to a place and change something, are afraid that it will be a permanent change. I don't see movements as a permanent change. I see them as a permanent fixture of something bigger. It's like saying French cuisine. It's like saying Italian cuisine without tomatoes. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine Italy without tomatoes or, or France without uh, potatoes? We wouldn't have anything a la Parmentier without potatoes in France. We wouldn't have um, pommes frites without potatoes in France. Those are all ingredients from the Americas that would not have existed. Those are all things that came from other places. Uh, however, when tomatoes and potatoes first came to Europe, people were terrified of them. They thought they were poisonous, and they were only used as decorations. Uh, so, so all all of that, I think, is an element of human kind, if you will. We tend to be afraid of changes. We and 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 when culinary movements happen, because exchanges at the table are so slow and friendly and non-intimidating. Um, they're they're easier, I think, for people to to accept and to embrace without fear, but they don't realize they're doing it until much later. And I think that's a good thing. I agree. It's it, like I said, it's sort of a gentle lull into improvements, and in that you're talking about that movements are very much organic, but also you're representing. I think with that example of. Italy not always having tomatoes and France not always having potatoes, that food is in a constant um, state of, flux. I was going to say flux, but it's not flux. It's it, evolution and that that's been going on and is is organic to to life. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to talk to Sandra about defining American regionalism in the New South. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Located in New York's Finger Lakes region, Ithaca boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation. As the saying goes, Ithaca is gorgeous. The city is home to 150 waterfalls and gorges sprinkled through its downtown and sloping hillsides. State parks and acres of natural lands offer outdoor recreation for every level of enthusiast. Come stroll among the cool ravines, scenic hiking trails, and natural vistas. Ithaca is home to Ivy League Cornell University and Ithaca College, resulting in an influx of new cultures, new tastes, and new energy every year. There's so much to explore, from art galleries and museums to unique attractions like the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Ithaca sits at the heart of a blossoming heritage and craft cider industry, Some of these delicious ciders can be bought in market, but many of the most unique varieties can only be experienced with a visit to Ithaca and this great cider region. Go to visitithaca.com to get inspired and plan your trip today. Welcome back. We're talking to award-winning author, culinary historian, and cooking teacher, Sandra Gutierrez, about the new Southern Latino movement and American regionalism. So before we talk regionalism, I thought it was also helpful for those people who might not be from the South or have visited the South recently. What defines what's for you or in the context of what you do, what you often call the Nuevo South and is also sometimes called the New South? How do, how do you look at that? Sure. 
to me, the North South follows the antebellum South and the civil rights South. It's the South that is still riled by racial and class divisions, but no longer defined only as white and black. It's a South that includes Latinx, Asians, new immigrants from all over the world. Uh, it's the South um, of the last two generations of Southerners, if you will, one that is in rapid and furious change reflected in politics, socioeconomic changes, but most measurably in food waste. And it may be Pollyannish of me, but to me, the New South, the Nuevo South, is the hope of a region that could one day erase racial divisions impulsed by a desire to build a longer table instead of a taller wall, if you will. I think there is more than just a regional thing. I think there's a spiritual, hopeful, um, quasi, uh, hope, yeah, a hope, a hope of a better, uh, of an improvement of, of a least divided South in the Nuevo South. No, I, and I think that, I think that was a great explanation of it. That's really helpful, and I think it's also fascinating to go back to what you said earlier about the you know with all the the rhetoric around borders and crossings is that historically, in particular, the American South was a very fluid region in terms of whose land it was and who was there and what types of people were there. And it, 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 this idea that it was completely static and rigid and, and was one way and not another, you know, it d- just depends what marker you take in history, right, to, to decide what was going on when. Correct. And right now, uh, the fluidity is, you know, we, we could call it the self-interrupted, if you will, but it, it is to me like that. It's like all of a sudden there was a parenthesis where no changes were allowed. And all of a sudden the parenthesis has been removed and and. Food waste, again, is the, the friendliest, easiest, um, simplest way of introducing cultures and bridging differences, if you will. And it's happening subtly, and again, it's unstoppable. Food has been evolving since the beginning of time. If we have to go back in time to see which food was the original food of each region, we would have to go back to the cavemen. Because ever yeah. since the world, people started commercing with each other and exchanging ingredients with each other, food has been in an evolution basis. And I don't think it'll ever stop. Yeah, I was fascinated. I read an interview with uh, Jose Andres, who was just uh, announced as the next Julia Child Award recipient. And this was in Edible Orlando. So we're talking about Florida, although Orlando not being the most historical of uh, Floridian places. And... He was he was making this comment that is so obvious, but I never thought about. And he was like, why is it that I'm introducing or reintroducing Spanish food ingredients to America when the Spanish were here well before any other English or European food traditions, yet somehow those foods disappeared? But he was sort of, I think, also implying that there's nothing more fitting than to have, as as you're talking about in part, a return to some of those those foods. Obviously, we're sidestepping a little bit the implications of colonialism, but I, I was just, it, it's such an obvious thought, but I thought it was so fascinating. Yeah, but I'll tell you something about colonialism. Uh, the history is painful. The history is full of strife and hatred and and, and hurt and tears. But I tend to look at the good side of things and think something good has to happen from something so horrible. Uh, I always look at the good things. Food is a good thing that has happened to the world. Uh, Food is a way of healing wounds. Food is a way of building bridges. So I'm not surprised that food is, is, is what is coming up now as, as the, the, the medicine for the soul, if you will, that we're reclaiming uh, all the things that we didn't talk about. It, it seems to me that what Jose Andres is doing with Spanish cuisine is the same thing that many people are doing around the world. It's this hush-hush secret of food waste that has been now all of a sudden opened up. And let's talk about the elephant in the room. And yes, the Spaniards were pivotal in the development of, of the food waste of all of Latin America and the United States. I mean, you don't have uh, jambalaya without paella. You don't have arroces. You don't have orange juice without the Spaniards bringing the oranges from uh, from Spain with them when they first came to the Americas. By the same token, the Spaniards had lived through a horrible colonial period, which we don't call colonialism, but a horrible invasion by the Ottomans or um, the Arabs, and they are the ones who introduced oranges to Spain. So we can go back 
to the history of the world again. So I don't see it as a political issue. I see it as a historical issue. Food waste is the, uni the, the union of people who have suffered the same thing throughout history over and over and over again in a healing place. And it can bring us to a healing place at the table where we can bridge differences, where we can talk about all these difficult subjects, and where we can hopefully start. That's why I talk about hope. We can hopefully start bringing um, healing at the table and progress to healing in other areas through food. So that, that's, I think it's time for us food historians and for us food culinarians to, to make food a healer again, a, a, a uniter again, and not only look at history in terms of division and strife, but look at history as, okay, we need to build something good of something so horrible or we're, or we're all going to be depressed. We're never going to come out of this <laughs> hatred and this division. No, I think your optimism is, is, is really, it, it's very nourishing. So let, let's switch to a little bit more to specifically talking about regionalism. And I feel like from talking to you before and listening to other things you've written, you're pretty adamant that Southern food is the prime example that American regionalism exists in food, which for those who don't know there, I guess there's some debate over whether you can say that there's anything more than American food or really does it break down like Italian or French food by region. So could you talk a little bit more about your views on American regionalism and food and whether Southern food counts as American regional cuisine? Absolutely. I believe that Southern food is the truest first regional cuisine of the United States. And that from there stem many others. And, and, and why do I see it as the first American regional cuisine? Because its culinary history mirrors that of every other country in the American continent. And by this, I mean the southern states and 21 other countries. Because you see, the name America is not the name of the United States. It's the name of an entire region of the world that includes North America, which is, of course, made of the U.S. and of Canada, Central, South America, and the Latin Caribbean. That's 23 countries. The United States is one country. When it comes to food waste, the South and all 21 Latin American countries share the largest chain of territories that have the same three commonalities that we talked about before, the same three ethnic groups at this formation, the same ingredients, the same culinary techniques. So since the 21 uh, cuisines uh, of these countries developed at the same time, same rate as the Southern region, I think it's fair for me to say that Southern cuisine is the truest and first regional cuisine of the United States of America. Are there other regional cuisines? Absolutely. Tex-Mex, for instance, is a regional cuisine. And I separate that from the new Southern Latino movement because that is Mexican-centric, because Texas was once part of Mexico. California cuisine is another regional cuisine. It combines Mexican, Asian, and world influences. Nuevo Latino cooking, which is coined by my friend Norman Van Aken, whom I admire, and he's one of, I think, the most important chefs to come through the United States in the history of the country. Uh, but the Nuevo Latino cooking coined by him and by the Mango Gang in the early 1990s, which includes Floridian cuisine, which is a blending of Florida, Caribbean, and some Latin American influence, uh, is another regional cuisine. The Pacific Northwest cuisine that includes Oregon, Yukon, Washington State, um, which features, you know, Asian and Native American influences, a lot of seafood, a lot of game, venison, elk, moose, a lot of um, na uh, natural ingredients like mushrooms, such as chanterelles or fiddlehern, fiddlehead ferns. Um, that's another regional cuisine. But if you ask me which the original and true original regional cuisine of, of the United States is, I would have to start with the South. This is where the original colonies were. This is where the original melding of people started. And it was happening at exactly the same time that it was happening throughout all of the Americas, which is what brings, gives me the liberty, the right to take the liberty to say that uh, very forcefully and to celebrate it because Southern regional cuisines were seen for so long as backward and people were not proud of being Southern uh, in terms of food waste for many, many decades. And luckily and, and gratefully, that has changed in the past three decades. But we should be proud and we should celebrate the fact that um, U.S. regional cuisine, this U.S. regional cuisine is so important for the formation of the rest. 
And do you think some of that, again, just to harp on this, is geographic, that in some ways the, the warmer, moister climate actually gave the, the southern United States and certainly Central America a more diverse range of ingredients than as you go much farther north where it gets colder and colder? I think that has definitely something to do with it. I once read a book, I love it, it's in my library, called something like Germs, Guns, and Steel. I think it's the title of the book. I I would have to go back and see it. But it's a great book that describes what you're saying, that um, certain areas of the world that benefit from good weather and good soil and good uh, um, ingredient, um, a basin of ingredients, if you will, tend to... Um, multiply their their food ways and uh, societies tend to flourish easier than in places where the climate is not friendly or or are in places that are harder to get so that is an element but i think that more than that it's just a historical way in which things happen at the same time in all of these regions of the americas i think people forget the americas are huge when i learned um history and i learned geography as a student in guatemala City, um, I learned it as America being one continent with three different parts. It was North America, Central America, South America. But here in the United States, since I moved here in the 80s, when I came to college, and I started hearing people referring to themselves as Americans, I'm like, no, 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 you are, we are citizens of the United States of America, and we are not citizens of the Americas. There are many countries in the Americas. So um, I'm diverging there, but, but I think that also say that it all happened because we shared so many historical things happening at the same time and territory ingredients definitely were part of it. And I was also struck while you were talking about Tex-Mex that um, obviously I'm in, in London and Europe a lot and someone was saying something about Mexican food and they mentioned chili and I was like mm -hmm. huh? I was like not chiles but chili and I was yeah. like, Chile is not Mexican. It comes from Texas. Is Am I correct in that? Because I just suddenly realized that actually people around the world also mix up uh, what is maybe American food, like you're talking about big Americas, the whole um, Western hemisphere, with just generically calling it Mexican, right? Chile, do you know about the history of Chile? A little bit of the history of chili. I think chili was sold by women in the markets in the border of Mexico and Texas, and that's how they made their money. And it was a mixture of uh, beef and um, ground-dried chiles in a sauce. So it is both Mexican and, and Texan because that was a, the shared territory. Um, whether you add beans or not is a different thing. But you can find a lot of chile verdes, chile rojos, chiles colorados, uh, and stews like that in Mexico. They're just a tradition of cooking um, beef or, or some kind of meat in a chile sauce. Um, so so it, I, I would have to give credence to both sides that say that claim it's Mexican and another side that claim it's Texan based on the fact that Texas was part of Mexico. So it's both. But the chili con carne that you refer to now is something that is recognized as Texan, not as Mexican. Mexicans don't talk about eating chili con carne. It is a Texan dish. Yeah, sorry, I should have been, that's exactly what I was referring to, because I think generically, especially the farther north you go and the wider culture you go, chili is chili con carne that was cooked in chuck wagons and is a kind of product of, of Texan um, and white assimilations of certain techniques from farther south yeah. in Mexico, but is inherently actually an, a North American and Texan dish in ways that I think people, the farther they get from having direct experience with, with um, uh, endemic Mexican food, that, that, that they get confused. So um, completely, that, that's a... completely. And in Mexico, you would use um, chunks of meat. Wow, in Texas, you're using ground beef uh, also. There, there are many variations, of course, as you go from place to place, but I think you've got it. And also the spelling of the word chili versus chile is also, I think, a clear example of where the division uh, lies between those recipes. So, yeah, I, I would have to agree with you. Uh, and then you have, of course, the chile, the, the, the white chicken chili with uh, green tomatillos that you find in Texas. It's also something reminiscent to the chiles and the chile verde that you will find in Mexico, but it's all 
it, it's all um, transformed itself into a dish in Texas that's completely different from what you would find in Mexico. So, yes, there is a differentiation. So I'm wondering now, we, we've, you've just talked passionately about Southern American food as a regional cuisine that I think you were sort of arguing is breaking borders. You're not defining it by nation states as much as just geographic regions. But do you think what people consider to be traditional Southern food that sort of peddled and marketed with nostalgia will kind of return to being just Southern food rather than, you know, labeled a Southern Latino movement and that these ingredients, whether it's peach salsa or jalapeno hush puppies or uh, chorizo biscuits and gravy, will that just become again Southern food as Latinx immigration is is as commonplace and entrenched as European and African immigration in the South? or, Or do you see it going a different way? I think that's a very interesting question. Will Southern food return to being Southern food as I think you're defining it? Uh, we'd have to go back to Native Americans eating sucatash, pecans, tree nut, ducks, roots, you know, to get back to true Southern roots because that's the same root of all the Americas. And I don't think that's possible. But uh, if you mean will Southern classics disappear? No, not ever. As long as home cooks keep them alive in their kitchens, as long as food writers perpetuate recipes in cookbooks, as long as food historians continue to keep records and uh, food waste, Southern food as we've come to know it will remain. Southern food, as I think we're talking about it here, the peach cobblers and the peach salsas, the pole beans cooked with ham and potatoes versus the causas that are being born out of potatoes and eggs and mayonnaise uh, mixtures a la Peruvian, if you will. I think that that is going to create a new branch and in Southern foodways. So I think it will become part of Southern foodways. But the classics, the fried okra, the boiled butter beans, the pulled pork, the tomato pies, the grits and shrimp, those will never leave. And oh God, I hope they never cease to exist because that's that's the soul of Southern foodways. That this is just the evolution. It's it's like it's like saying they will you're gonna get a lot of Moroccan influences in the food of France but ratatouille will never disappear. Um, you may get, you know, your chicken parmo in, in Great Britain, but your roast chicken and your boiled potatoes and your um, delicious food of, of Britain will never disappear. It can't. We just build upon the classics. Uh, Southern foodways won't look back and return to its origin. I don't think it can. I don't think any cuisine can. It would be like erasing an entire history. Uh, because food is always evolving, like we said. But who knows what Southern food will look like in 50 years? If, if, if I could predict, I'd say that Southern food will continue to change and the next wave will come from India and from the Middle East, which is where the new Southerners are coming from. Um, and Southern food will never be as it was before. It'll just continue to grow and to change. However, Southern regional classics will always remain. Thanks for that. Are you part of the Nuevo South? What are some of the biggest changes in regional food where you live? Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org to let us know. After the break, Sandra's going to reveal her Julia moment. We'll be right back. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. Sandra, what's your Julia Moment? You know, I was never fortunate enough to meet Julia in person, but she's been part of my life for a long time. 
I first heard of Julia Child at Smith College, our shared alma mater. Um, and I went there wanting to become a writer, and I left there wanting to become a food writer. And I'd like to think that she had something to do with that. I certainly was enthralled by all the history uh, of Julia while she was at Smith and reading her books and, and cooking from her um, shows. And when I got married back in the 80s, I discovered her shows on PBS. And as a new housewife, I would miss them. I got her, her books. Um, and I think I own all of them now. But my Julia moment hasn't happened yet. I like to think that it will happen very soon. In November, in fact. Because my work will <laughs> become part of an exhibit at the National Museum of American History house right next door to Julia Child's kitchen. And I think that'll be as close as I'll ever be to cooking near Julia. Uh, and I'd love to think that she would approve. I'm sure I'm sure she would be fascinated and excited about it and much more interested in this conversation. So we're bringing everything full circle. Sandra, thank you so much for joining us today. Todd, thank you for having me. It's always such a pleasure to talk with you. And you. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Find out what we're up to this summer by checking us out on social media. Search at Julia Child on Facebook or at Julia Child Foundation, all one word on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T Shulkin, T S C H U L K I N on Twitter. Sandra's most recent book is Empanadas, the Handheld Pies of Latin America, published by Harry Abrams in 2015. If you want to dig deeper into the new Southern Latino movement, look for her cookbook, The New Southern Latino Table Recipes That Bring Together the Bold and Beloved Flavors of Latin America and the American South, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2011. To connect with Sandra on social media, she's at Sandra Latinista on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and Sandra is S-A-N-D-R-A. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Please give us a review. It really does help new listeners discover the show. And if you're able to do it on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, that really helps also. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.